0: I'm Brian Carpenter, host of Fresh Art 5, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another great episode of My EdTech Life. I am so excited to be here with you all today because not only do we have an amazing guest that we're going to be talking about, all things creativity, storytelling, amplifying creativity, but I also, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank each and every single one of you for your support. Today is our 200th episode of My Ed Tech Life, and it has been quite an amazing journey Three years in the making, and I couldn't think of a better person to have on the show and talking about a wonderful topic, which I absolutely love, and I am a huge proponent of, about uh, amplifying creativity. So thank you all, as always, from for all of your support, all the shares, the likes, the follows. You know, all of you that are subscribing to our, uh, obviously, our podcast, subscribing to us on YouTube. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. It really means a lot that, you know, we've been able to bring some great conversations into our learning community, into our PLF, my personal learning family. So thank you all from the bottom of my heart. And tonight we have, like I mentioned, a great guest and we're going to have just an amazing conversation. So Tanya Everest is here joining us tonight. Tanya, how are you doing this evening?
0: Oh, I'm so happy and I'm so honored to be your 200th guest like that's insane i i can't imagine doing 200 of anything this is a huge accomplishment so congratulations to you and thank you for having me and it's really nice to like meet you in person and like be here so thank you so much and hi to everybody
1: yes absolutely again i'm very excited been a huge fan and a follower of yours for many years, you know the things that you've been able to put out, and even helping uh, with my district too as well, bringing some uh, professional development through Adobe in the summers. You know, you and Clara, and then of course Dom, and we've had wow. them uh, do those trainings, and it's just been wonderful to be able to share the amazing uh, Adobe awesome sauce, and of course the cre- the amplification of creativity, which I think to me is something that is very important, very important and very much needed in our classrooms um, today and from here on out. As we know, the technology is going to get better and better each time. So thank you so much for being here. So before we get started with just the meat of the conversation, Tanya, for some audience members that may be joining us this evening or catching this on the replay that may not be familiar with your work yet, If you can give us a brief introduction and your context in the education space, uh, that would be amazing. Well, uh, absolutely.
0: So I have been working in the education space as a teacher slash coach um, slash, I guess, consultant strategist since um, it's about almost 18 years now. So uh, education is my life. I uh, am the co-author of the Google Infused Classroom with my best friend and sister, Holly Clark, and the Microsoft Infused Classroom. And I'm really excited for her because she's about to launch a new book coming out, the AI Infused Classroom, which is not mine, but like so proud of my girl. And I am also an education evangelist slash strategist on the education team at Adobe and have been working with them for the past four years. Uh, Prior to coming on board at Adobe, I was teaching, I've worked as a consultant, I've helped support um, and worked as an instructional technology coach at a district in Montreal. So I have wore many different hats. uh, But my favorite hat is, of course, being a teacher. Uh, That's where I think my heart and soul lies. So that's a little bit of me.
1: Excellent. Well, that's so great, you know, because everything that you've done, and like I said, I've been following you for as long as probably I've been on Twitter and then I've known who you are. Uh, And you definitely are just amazing in everything that you've done, you know, your work, your authorship, all of those great things. Uh, But again, I really want to say thank you for your role in Adobe that you, um, you know, currently hold and sharing just amplification of creativity through Adobe and the importance of that. And not only yourself, but the opportunity that I've had to work alongside Claudio in the Creative Institutes. And then, of course, the plethora of uh, Adobe evangelists that are out there. And of course, I had Ben Forta on the show, you know, earlier, and he speaks so highly of every single one of you. So I'm just really thankful that you're here. And we're definitely going to talk a little bit about the, you know, the Ace, um, the Creative Institutes as well. But, you know, the main thing that I really wanted to talk about is, again, amplification of creativity and you know, the storytelling process in the classrooms. And I think how, um, you know, that can help significantly a child's learning. And not only that, but I always believe that once you enhance that learning process, that's something that they take with them forever. And it essentially becomes part of who they are. So there's a lot of things that I definitely want to, you know, touch on. So first of all, how would you define storytelling in the education space? And what is the role that it plays within the classrooms?
0: Okay, so i I'm a few things that I want to kind of get out in the open as I discuss like storytelling and kind of contextualizing it through the lens of teaching and learning. So I have dyslexia. I'm dyslexic. And uh, I actually realized that or I came, I guess like di- was diagnosed, you know, or however you agree with it as an adult. And so growing up, I was really creative and really like very much a divergent thinker, but like struggled in some of like a lot of my learning and then like was really in other plate, like in other parts of my learning. Right. So like I'm an incredible um, historian, like I can look at systems and like understand them on like such a complex in such a complex way. And like I can see things like very high level. And then when it comes to like things that are so easy for other people to do, like writing a paper, like, like writing an email, like I writing a blog post, I literally would like have a heart attack and just be like, I don't know what's wrong with me. And so I was, a can I say the S word? I was a terrible, I will not say it. I was a terrible test taker, like horrible as a kid, but I was like really good students. My students, like my teachers loved me. I was really creative. So all of these pieces like didn't make sense to me. I was able to go through school. I wrote two books because I, you know, the way I think and the partners that I have in, in the work that I do. But as I realized this in my, and let's say I've realized this since my son has gone into school. So he's a sixth grader. When he entered kindergarten, And we started getting him tested. I realized, okay. And that's, there's genetics in in part, like in part with dyslexia, right? So when we realized that, like, Gabby has dyslexia, I realized, oh my God, I have dyslexia and started doing a lot of work around, like, what does that mean? What does it look like? It, you know, what people don't realize is that, um, dyslexia affects about 20% of students like sitting in a room. So very often it's misdiagnosed or undiagnosed, or it's like coded as something else because it's on a spectrum. So a lot of people don't get it. And I'm getting to my point with storytelling because it's connected. Um, And so what I realized in the last few years and where I like, I think I became like mama bear, like Crane of crazy about was because all to know, and, and by the way, just like I'm giving you my life story, but I moved from Montreal, Canada, to South Florida nine years ago. And I worked in education in Canada and then came here as a consultant, worked in a lot of private schools. And then when I took my role in Adobe, like really I support a lot of public schools. And the system is so different here than it is back home like where I'm from so as a mom as a parent I had to also then learn how to navigate a system that really relies on testing as its main measure for like success when we know that like asking a child with dyslexia to take a test as their only format of assessment is not going to be an accurate representation of what they know because do they understand the content or are they, uh, like, misled by the test because the test is actually designed to mislead them in terms of writing and reading, right? So I became, like, fiercely passionate on a crazy level around having these conversations about alternative assessment. And where does storytelling come in? Well, storytelling in my mind is really the opportunity for students to be able to demonstrate their learning using different methods, right? So if a student needs to be able to articulate their understanding through pressing record and articulating that they understand conceptually what they're learning, using a video or using a visual representation, creating a slideshow, creating an infographic. So all those pieces come into play because the way I define that storytelling piece is really connected to the way that we allow students to use alternative means to demonstrate their learning. And we know because we're human, that story is how we actually make sense of the world. So it makes sense that if we're going to provide learners with opportunities to to show what they know through stories and stories that are meaningful for them, they are going to learn better. And that makes sense for them. Metacognitively, that makes sense for the way that we approach teaching and learning. So I, I hope that makes sense. I know that's a long story to kind of explain that, but like I think it's important to understand that journey because that's where I think it's not just like nice to have it's like essential for so many kids that sit in our classes it's not it's not optional
1: no and everything that you said it just takes me back to when I was in the classroom in my 5th grade 6th grade classrooms where you're absolutely right you know myself just being not big uh, a fan of writing but I would love to talk and talk through, you know, what I've learned. Well, you have a podcast now. Let's do yeah. the big thing. Exactly. So it makes sense. And that's why, like, you know, I invite amazing guests such as yourself because I want to learn, but I want to learn, you know, in a conversational manner. Sometimes, you know, for me, it's just very hard to sit down and really, you know, pick up a book. And yeah, I'll go through the book. But sometimes I just that storytelling aspect and hearing it straight from the source and You know, for me, it it really honestly feels like it really does become part of me. And so going to back going back to what you're saying, you know, when I was in the classroom, we had just, you know, had Chromebooks in our district and there was only two Chromebook carts. And I was that one teacher that checked out the one Chromebook cart all year. I just signed it out all year and it lived in because the other teachers, they weren't familiar with the tech or they just didn't. There were, you know, it was something that was so new. But what I found is how important that piece of tech was to help many of my students because I had students that were emergent bilinguals and, you know, students that had uh, needed uh, additional supports, things of that sort. But just putting the Chromebooks in their hands and saying, hey, I want you to show me your learning in the way that you feel comfortable with. And I was just experimenting. And honestly, I felt like I was really taking a risk because up until that, it's always paper assessment, paper assessment, fill in the blanks, you know, bubble in sheet. But when I would give them just these assignments with a rubric, but then stating, you can either show me, record yourself doing a, you know, maybe a screencast, creating an infographic, um, you know, creating uh, just some sort of slide presentation. It was amazing where I saw that my students were acquiring the proper vocabulary language because they were practicing. And I had students that were just brand new, recently coming. That was their first year in the school, emerging bilinguals. But their language, that grows from the beginning of the year till the end of the year, where at the beginning of the year, uh, my student, I'll never forget her, She was very shy, very self conscious, obviously, because of the language. But when I would put a Chromebook in front of her and she created either an infographic or a slideshow, she spoke loudly and Uh clearly, you know, with sharing, you know, showing me that she did grasp the concept and she did learn. Later on at the end of the year, she said, Mr. Mendoza, I'm ready to present in front of the class. And she got up and presented in the most beautiful language. And she just that growth from the beginning of the year. And those are the things that I love that, you know, the importance of it in giving the students that choice and in how they want to share their learning. It's so powerful. And so everything that you described, I was like, oh, my gosh, that just, you know, describes my experience as well that I absolutely love. So now let me ask you, you know, as far as that, that storytelling and, of course, talking about creativity, why do you feel that it's very important for students to develop their creativity? And as an educator in the classroom, how might you encourage me or us to go ahead and amplify their creativity?
0: Yeah. Wow, I like I almost went a whole day off for that <laughs> Well, I, I think that, um I think that in terms of like, how am I going to approach that with, you know, my students and encourage that, you know, that, that, you know, that, that type of creativity. Um So we, as you know, like at Adobe, we have something called the Adobe Creativity Institute. And uh, we were, like, talking about it before the show because I know that you, you know, you have, you've seen it in action and you're familiar with it. But it's been, like, such a crazy ride with, like, how that has developed, but also, like, how we have been able to, like, really teach teachers, like, how to develop creativity. Um, So this Creativity Institute actually started in atlanta at fulton county and it was during the pandemic and i was working with this district and they have all these instructional technology coaches they have this thing called the vanguards and it's incredible and they like train all these trainers and they go out and they do like all this work in these schools and they all are connected to their schools And they were asking me like they wanted to do from professional development over the summer. And there's like 400 of them. And they were like, well, what are we going to do? And I started having these conversations about creativity in general. And what we started to notice were like there were trends and around like creativity in general, like very often one of the barriers to like having like creativity in our classes is because very often we don't actually know how to develop it. Like, you'll say as a teacher, like, okay, uh, you know, okay, students, like, go, you're going to create something. And then you're like, and here's a rubric and creativity is 10% of your grade. And you're like, and like, you're like, okay, like, what does creativity sound like? What does it look like? Like, what, how, how do you actually like help students develop their skills? Because that's like a skill that can be taught. It's not like you're just creative, like. Yes, yeah, some people might like be divergent thinkers and they like might, it might come a little more natural. They may be willing to take more risks, but like everyone can be creative. And so we started to kind of like look at, well, what does that look like? And so we actually will start off and like if you've come to one of our institutes, you, you'll probably have seen this, but we'll start off with like exemplary work with students. And so we will show them like, you know, you have to kind of create, the activity so that there's more open-endedness, you know, like create a book cover, um, of such and such. Like, it's not going to be like three lines, eight colors, you know, like you want to be able to like design something where like, like there's an opportunity for it to look different, but it's like connected to the content. Okay. So like we do that. And then what we do is we show several exemplars and we will use like a single point rubric and have the criteria listed. And we do this and we have the participants and the the students, because I've taught this way, actually like go through the exemplars because this is after we've like been going through the criteria, they should at least understand that like we're using this as like a teaching method and also as an assessment for them to demonstrate their learning. And so we go through the exam, the exemplars with the single point rubric and then we ask the students to identify what works. What are they exceeding at in those and what could we improve on? And we do this first with the with the students, with also the participants. And then this way like they have an understanding of like, okay, this is what it is that we are talking about. And this is some of the criterion. And so they can identify what the content is and what the criteria is. And then we say, okay, now you're gonna go and you're gonna create. And what we do is we create some concept, like some constraints. And we're like, okay, you have. 10-15 minutes you're going to we show them like you know how to use it through a template and we have them create their first iteration and then we ask them to stop duplicate it make a new one and we give them more time so we have them creating multiple versions of their work digitally which is kind of the huge benefit of digital right like you're not like cutting pasting like you can create many iterations and then what we have them do is after we also have them develop out like their you know, their title or whatever the criteria is, we give them like framing and time to like develop out each part of the project. And in between that, we give them time to get feedback from each other. So like, you know, they they're constantly creating, stopping, getting feedback from a few people and then continuing. So I'm not giving the whole process like totally. There's like a whole way of doing it. You have to go to an institute. Yes. But by the end of that experience what's so crazy and and you've done it so you know like the participants because very often like when you start something creative you go you like don't know what you're supposed to do and you'll have the kids come up and be like is this good news did i get in there is this okay it is. and so when you create this process and you develop the criteria and it's very clear and they're following this process by the end of the, the experience, the students come back and they feel supported because they know what they, to look for. They know what they were supposed to be doing and they know what success looks like. And they've had several opportunities for low stakes assessment from their peers. So like formative assessments. And so by the time they are ready to like actually submit their work, they Feel really confident, and they're able to defend their un- their understanding because they really understand the criteria. So this is like high level. It's hard to explain like this way without visuals and actually going through it. But that's like, it sounds complicated. It's not. It's really like setting up processes, having uh, scaffolding the activities, and providing opportunities for feedback in a low stakes way when you're when you're having kids create, and it's fun you know? And so it's part of learning. It's not this like add on. They're learning by doing this because the steps are, are scaffolded for them. So the creative part is the learning. It's not like the outcome. It's not like, okay, I learned all this and now you're going to make a poster at the end. Like they're learning about all the pieces as they're doing the creation and they're getting all the feedback. So like, it's really connected to like project-based learning. It's like it's all connected to like the kind of student-centered stuff that we want to see. That very often is really hard to understand how to develop. Okay, I, no. think, I hope it's that totally, makes sense. It's yes,
1: kind of- no, but everything that you you said is great because oftentimes I I truly believe that there are many people that believe no, I'm not creative. I can't be creative, and you know maybe some of it could be that imposter syndrome because. Obviously, if you're on social media, you see some of the great uh, educators that are out there that are doing some great things and creating just some great things that they're sharing out. And, you know, people are like, well, I can't do that. But all it takes is just like you said, that practice, that iteration, just really understanding the tool, then maybe getting some feedback and, you know, putting it out there again. And I must add, you know, working at that Creative Institute uh, with Tanya, who's here joining us live. Um, was something that was amazing because you get to see educators, their faces light up, and and but you also get to see them sort of in that role of the student because they themselves feel like, did I do this right? Am I do am I on the right track? And it's kind of gr- it's a growing process, but I think once they go through that process, they feel very comfortable. They get out of there, and now. They feel like they can take that creative risk in the classroom because oftentimes they feel like, well, no, I'm I'm not as tech savvy, but now they're willing to take that risk with the little that they know. Oftentimes I think that we don't give our students enough credit that they are, you know, very tech savvy and can, you know, sometimes show us and learn from them, which I did many times. And uh, that's part of the learning process as well, that community, that communication, getting that feedback. And then, you know, it's pretty much you're you're doing some great stuff there. And so, I, yeah, absolutely. If you get an opportunity, ladies and gentlemen that are joining us, that are listening to the podcast later on, if you ever see that there is an Adobe Creative Institute anywhere near you, I highly recommend that you go to one of those because you will not come out the same. And you will be very excited about the creative process and bringing that into your classroom. So, yeah, thank you so much for that. Oh, we had a little visitor. gonna say, like, it's live. Yeah, it's live. Hey, don't worry. It happens. We've had the babies come out. We've had dogs barking. We've had all sorts of stuff. So it's all good in that live process. But yeah. Well, Absolutely. Like everything that you shared, just spot on because I got to see that firsthand. And even in the classroom, my experience with the students, you know, I I think sometimes teachers, they feel, like I said, uh, a little scared. But, you know, once you get that creative process going and you start building that community, things just get so much easier in that aspect.
0: Well, it's it's really interesting because I'm just thinking like this is your 200th episode, right? And there must have been such a learning journey for you from like your first year to 100. Like people will be tuning in now. And it's like, I even said that to you when we came out. I was like, your lighting's so nice. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I wonder if your lighting was so nice. Like episode one, like maybe your mic wasn't, right? Like, uh, you know what I mean? Like hmm? we, I think sometimes like you're right. People will see like a polished product, yeah. but not understand that like, Bonds. Like you had two hundred episodes of practice, and now you kind of have this flow, and you're you you've got this, you know, got a rhythm. You got to you have the lighting. You have like even the way that you approach the conversation is probably so much smoother. Like your processes kind of come down, and it's like great. Well, that's the same thing with everything we do, and we know this as teachers. We know that, but I think that there's this like this misconception that like we are like you know afraid to take these risks because we see what the that like amazing outcome like down the line and like we have to stop doing that with our students like we need to practice what we preach we need to be vulnerable and take risks we need to be able to say like this is my first time doing something like it might not be perfect like I feel like that's so important to be vulnerable, to really be able to help students recognize that like when we are vulnerable and and try new things that and it doesn't necessarily go well, that that's OK, because that's what we want them to do. And unfortunately, like so much of the work that ends up mattering is so high stakes that like it does not often provide the culture for that kind of creativity to happen. Um, But I still think those are like the little things that we can still control in some capacity. And even if it's in a small way that we can model in our classrooms so that we can encourage those learners to take those creative risks. So, yeah, I think that that's like a a really interesting point that you make. Like no. Oh, and you you see things on social media, on Instagram, and like everyone is so polished. But if you really think about where people start versus where they are, and a lot of it is just being consistent, then everyone could take risks and do great things if they like work at it.
1: Yeah, no, and I agree. and I think for myself early on, you know, like you said, if you go back to episode one on April 10th of 2020, and then you see this episode uh, or the previous one, whichever one you go to, you definitely see that progression and that growth. And again, like you said, you, you learn and it's just all about iteration. And my goal is always just get 1% better every day at what you're doing. And the same thing in the classroom. And that's why to me, I always love to amplify creativity and with the teachers, just sometimes really just having a heart to heart with them and letting them know because you said something very important. It's everything is so high stakes now. Everything is all about the test, and they start as little as you know third grade all the way to ninth grade. So, it, because of due to that high stakes testing, I feel that many teachers feel feel that doing an activity such as you know an about me or maybe even just remixing a template or giving them an opportunity to show their learning, whether it's through video, an infographic, I feel that they feel that it's like oh no, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this and I'm just going to give the worksheet, you know, and I'm good. But I always found it that it helped me in my teaching where I'm able to bundle more of the standards together in a big creative project and the students are still learning what they need to learn, but they're doing it in a way that they feel comfortable with. They still have their rubric where the expectations are there for me to be able to see the learning that took place. But one thing that I want to add to this is also the thing that I love is the evidence of growth from the beginning of the year to the end of the year because I have a digital artifact that the student or students have submitted to me that at any given time if my principal calls in for a meeting, whether it's you know a 504, an IEP, an RTI and all the rest of the alphabet soup meetings that we have, I have evidence of that student's growth, you know, in my classroom through that creative process as well. And like you said, maybe the student may not be a good test taker on paper, but if you give them a presentation to do, they can show you their learning like nobody's business. If they may be an emergent bilingual and don't feel comfortable, you know, maybe speaking, but I give you an opportunity to create, you know, a slide presentation you can speak loudly through that, you know, slide presentation, and still show that learning. And so that's the one thing that I absolutely love. That I feel sometimes, from third grade to ninth grade, might be missing because of the high stakes.
0: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's interesting you say that. My daughter's a ninth grader, and today she had her algebra. <laughs> she had her I see. I, um, my daughter had her ninth grade algebra one. She math has always been like one of the subjects where she had struggled. And so she's, she's taking algebra one, which in the state of Florida, you need to pass algebra one final exam to graduate. So it's like really high stakes. And so she did the exam today. It was so sad. We picked her up. She was hysterical, crying. She said to me, um, "Her, my, I. She has a different last name. I never changed my into my married name. I'm married, but so she's V, okay. And so she was at the end of the gym, 300 kids. It's a huge school, and she said it was 60 degrees in there. She was wearing a sweater, but she was sweating the whole time. So she was so nervous. Like, so think about what we do to these kids. She, she said she was crying in her. This is so sad. In her sweater." because it was so hard and she knew the content she studied she had tutors she had an A going into the exam but she's not a good test taker and the pressure was so insane and she cried when she got out and she's like she took the extra time that they gave like she did everything right and she's like I don't think I passed I'm like well it's truly to see they may curve it what you know like we don't know like let's wait um and and it's fine she'll redo it again in September. like you know they give you several opportunities to take it but how awful that that's like and it's just te- like she knows the content but it's a tricky assessment that's really not even meant to show what she knows it's really meant to see like like to to, to curve the mm-hmm. the you know it's not meant for the kid it's so ridiculous and we still are doing that right and that is still what's driving like the decision if she graduates or like how crazy is that Mm -hmm. and by the way like as you were speaking i was thinking about like when you're talking about like having this artifact to show your growth and to be able to demonstrate like and i've been watching i was looking back like at all your like like episodes over the last like i don't know 20 30 40 episodes and so much of the conversation that we're having around like chat gbt and like ai and like when we think about it like let's be real. Like, most of the skill sets that, like, were relevant, like, five months ago are no longer relevant. And, like, I think teachers are going to be having, like, or if not already, like, that as a community, we are having, like, an existential crisis about, like, what are we going to do? And it's, like, like, for me, it's, like, obvious because, like, I've always done alternative assessments, portfolios. Like, that's, like, truly how I've been teaching since the beginning of my teaching career. So like, it's not, I'm not like freaked out because I'm like, well, yeah, we'll, we would have an artifact that shows like they're demonstrating using an infographic where they're like pulling out all the research mm-hmm. and you'd have them show it visually. And then you're going to have them do like a skeletal, like three versions through chat, pull out all the important parts and like comment on the pieces. And then we would have them create like a, what I want to know, what I don't want to know in a video component. And at the end, once they do that and they write the assessment, and if they do write it, they're going to have to go in and like write a reflect, like do a reflection, explain their process and what they learned and what they got. And like, maybe it's not going to be about the writing anymore. Maybe it's going to be like that they understand the writing process and how to tell an argumentative answer. Like what Like, But ultimately, like they'll put a portfolio together and then they're going to make a visual portfolio using Adobe Express and they're going to have images and videos and components and it's going to be a multimedia assessment. And that's what they're going to do instead now. You know, it's like mm-hmm. that creative piece that like connects all the dots of like all the things that we're talking about, about like developing creativity, like adding all the demonstrations and showing the process and like having them reflect. Well, that's just good teaching. It always was good teaching. That doesn't change what we've been discussing as good teaching. But now, but now they're going to have to like really demonstrate that. And that's going to be essential, I think. And that's going to have to catch up. Because there's just no other way.
1: Yeah. So, no. Well, see, going with what you're saying. Um, here in my school district, I had to go and and monitor. Since I work at central office, it's like I just go monitor and help out and see, you know, if any of campuses need any help during that state testing. And again, going back to what you were saying, that happened to your daughter. I mean, for me, seeing a third grader, first time he's taking a state exam, and he is crying uncontrollably because he is stressed out the fear of failure set in because imagine it's, it, it's whether it was like, Hey, you better do well, or this may happen, or maybe just natural stress from, you know, what this, um, you know, the stakes that this test has. I mean, it just really broke my heart, really broke my heart. And I wanted to kind of give a shout out here also to Jared, who's joining us, who says, you know, also that his son, um, you know, doesn't do well with, multiple choice assessments. So give them something there where he can create using Book Creator or something else that yeah. they excel in. So I wanted to add to that. Like, for example, you know, those skills, that test, once you're in high school, yes, we, we everything's measured through standardized tests. But when you get into the real world and into college, you know, when I did, it, it was, yeah, you have tests, you know, for your content area. But when I got to my master's, it was, you're just going to submit your portfolio. Pretty much every class that you take, Every assignment that you have, those are your learning artifacts that shows that you've submitted this to me, that you've shown mastery during this class. You're going to put it in a portfolio. And at the end, we didn't even have to do a capstone. We didn't have to do any comprehensive. My final was just submitting my portfolio and making sure that I just tied it to my matrix, you know, and that was it. They're like, you're done. And at the end, their goal was at the end, we just want you to have a portfolio that you can present at a job interview where it really matters. And I thought that that was so creative. Now, in my doctoral courses, it was all writing, writing, writing. Then I had a professor that all of a sudden, one semester, she says, hey, I'm going to give you all a choice board. And you've got this or this or this or this or a combination of these. Uh, Tanya, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, my colleagues there in that class, you know, all educators, years of education experience their eyes were just like a deer in headlights look because they're like, like, what do you mean a choice board? Because we're so used to just tell me what I need to do so I can get the A and, you know, what do I need to do? But when you give them the choice, they were like freaking out. Like, I don't understand. So so I can do this or this? And I was like, wow. The next semester I had the same prof and she said, oh, this year, uh, this semester I'm doing ungrading. You're going to grade yourself. You're going to create your own rubric. and But these are the assignments you need to submit to me. And based on what you give me that you're great or or what you think you're great should be, if I feel that maybe you're saying, oh, you're just, you know, turning in something that's just subpar, but you're giving yourself a hundred, you know, you're going to need to explain to me and tell me why you feel you should get that grade to justify that. And I mean, we're talking doctoral level course choice boards and so on. And I feel like if they could do it in the doctoral, you know, programs, why can't we give more choice to our students in our school setting K through 12? Uh,
0: And let's take that one step further. Like I, you know, I'm an educator. I worked in education and I guess in academia for, I guess, you know, if we look at it from that perspective, for most of my career. Four years ago, you know, I moved into like, working in a corporate setting and I work at a huge company and I'm going to be like really like frank about this like I've never had to take a multiple choice assessment in my job like I have like the skill sets that actually are valuable are like the ones that we're not really like developing with kids like students need to be able to uh, think on their toes, be able to make decisions without like all the information, and be able to understand like where to find the right information. They have to be able to like, you know, there are all these pieces that like we because what happens is like we're not providing kids with enough opportunities to like think critically about the work that they're doing, and then like feel that it's okay to take risks and then learn through like potentially not doing well on something and so like that's why there's like this like what do I need to do to get an A like and by the time they hit 11th, 12th grade they are like the ones that are masterful playing the game of education or game of school are really going to be successful but that does not necessarily equate that they're going to be successful like once they hit like the workforce like they're they might excel in like some elements but that doesn't mean that like they're going to be able to think like entrepreneurially or like, like, there's so many things that like we can be doing that like develop that. And when I worked in education, it really dawned on me like, for the most part, like how many teachers have actually like we talk about like we're preparing kids for the real world. And I'm not saying that like education is not the real world. But like, sometimes you have to also I've also like kind of come to this realization as I've moved out of academia, like, we as teachers like I never worked in a corporate setting before working in a corporate setting so like how would I know what skills that I even needed to develop and what we have experienced in education for the longest time is the system that has like worked in academia and then like now we're saying like well the we, this system does work but like we don't actually necessarily know what that system needs to be so we're stuck in like a holding pattern Right. I don't have the answers for this. This is just like my brain thinking in overdrive. (laughs) But like, that's what I've noticed, like, as someone who's kind of like been in the classroom for all these years, like worked as a consultant, like did all the work in academia and now has work like experience in like a different setting. So I'm not saying it in a negative way. Like, it's not like a bad thing. It's just like it's kind of a reality. Like, how do we break that cycle? Right. Like we're. That is like, how are we going to gain that experience? Like, even as educators. And I think there's like opportunities to learn about like processes. There's opportunities to like, to, to learn on ourselves. There's watching these podcasts, like like working outside of academia, like listening to podcasts from like other, like avenues or, or, or industry. Like, I think that that matters. But, you know, ultimately we also have to work within our confounds and like what we're told we need to be doing to, to develop kids. So it's kind of frustrating. I feel like we could talk about it in forever. But, you know, what can we control, right? (laughs) Control the opportunities we give kids. We can control the options. And, you know, yes, you know what? Having kids have choice is a small thing we can do, and it goes a long way.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with you on that 100%. All right. Well, now, before we start wrapping up as we're getting closer to ending the show, but, you know, going back to the conversation as far as creativity, creativity in the classroom, and I know you talked about it, you brought it up, you know, of course, we've got AI and we've got AI tools and so on. So I wanted to ask you what your thoughts are, especially, you know, with tools such as Dolly, of course, you've got Adobe Firefly, you've got you know, uh, Adobe Express and so many other tools that are out there. Uh, where do you see, you know, these tools helping out in that creative process? Or do you see them maybe hindering them a little bit? Because we, we know that there might be teachers that say, well, this is already going to do that for them. So are they being really creative still? You know, so what are your thoughts just surrounding AI creativity in the K-12 space? So
0: that's a good question. I think I don't want to jump into like conclusions um, quite yet. I, I I think that we are going to have to kind of enter this space like with our eyes wide open and really explore like what is working, what is not working. I think sometimes we go to like extremes immediately. We're like, I love this. This is amazing. Like We have to do it this way. And then we will like go to the other trees like ban everything, lock it down. Don't let anyone use it. And so, like, I think what we'll have to do is, like, look at how we're going to use this ethically. Because one of the things that, like, I could speak as, like, not as Adobe, but, like, what I am seeing through Adobe is um, we're really, really dedicated to, like, an ethical uh, approach to AI. And that's why, like, they have been kind of releasing it the way that they have. Um, They are actually, like, paying creators if their work gets picked up through Adobe stock, like they are thinking about like um, the representation and like the way that you put in your your queries and like what pops up like they've done like ex- they like they really take this really serious. So like there's going to have to be like serious conversations just like we did when like Google came out and like we were like, oh, my God, and Google and like Wikipedia is terrible block. It's like it's actually not that different. I mean, it is very different, but like, it's even, it's more advanced, but like the conversations we had then are similar to the ones that we're going to have now. And yes, like we had to like learn to navigate it and adapt and like have kids think about, uh, you know, digital citizenship and we're going to have to do the same even more. We're going to have to talk about bias and how to identify bias. And we're going to have to talk about like how to think critically. And and then we're going to look at it and be like, well, when can we use it? How can we ask better questions? How can we use it as a learning tool? How do we know to to triangulate what it's saying so that we don't take it for face value? how you know how are we going to use this as an assistant um as a creator i it's going to be super helpful to help me design to help me take my imagination and tell stories and like put in really good queries and be able to like tell visual stories like I think that there's a lot of potential and at the same in the same breath, like we're gonna also have to be really aware and not like blinded by new shiny things and be still critical and teach those critical skills. So like because I do believe that like this is the new literacy. It's no longer going to be like, you know, in the past was like, can we read? Can we not read? Okay. Can they search? Can they not search? Okay. I think like now it's going to be like do you like can they use AI to help them or replace them like in the workforce? And like that will be a reality that won't go away. So we are going to have to address these pieces and not like stick our heads in the sand and in the same breath be like aware of like what some of the like potential pitfalls are and like also think about like what jobs are not going to exist and now like really try to steer our 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 students our children our you know into industries that like they can use it for work so there that's my (laughs) thing
1: no that's great and thank you so much for sharing that because you hit on a couple of things too that you know, the way that Adobe is rolling these things out, you know, the tools and so on, and just being very cautious. I mean, there are so many platforms that have come up since December and everybody, like I said, sometimes we we just get attracted by the shiny new thing and we want to be the first one to use it and we want to be the first one to put uh, put things out and so on. But then we don't take into account, you know, the other side, the data, the data privacy, protecting our children, protecting ourselves. I mean, teachers, imagine all the clicks and sites that they visit on a daily basis, the students also, whether it's at school or at home. So we want to make sure we're very cautious with that. But also, like you said, you know, query, the searching, you know, make sure that we take care of any biases, make sure that we know how to input a prompt make sure that we get the right uh, output. So there's a lot of skills there that we're still going to need to learn and we need to elevate our game in that. And so and then you mentioned, too, I mean, the future of work and the future of learning Definitely this, the tools are going to get better and better. And so we definitely need to introduce those tools to our students, but in a responsible way that is age appropriate. And then we're still going to be exposing them to what they will be needing as they continue to move forward. So, yeah, definitely excited about that. And again, Tanya, I mean, thank you so much. I really appreciate all your insight. More than anything, your your also your passion, your enthusiasm, your genuineness and the work that you do for Adobe. And of course, being able to be part of this, this is something that is so big here in the Adobe space for education is just wonderful. And, you know, your message of amplifying creativity, not only yourself, but all the Adobe, you know, creative evangelists that are out there, everybody that works, you know, and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I wish you all the best in, at this because this is something that we definitely need. And I'm all for it. And I'll, I'm the biggest fan of it, too, as well. So oh, thank, you. thank
0: you. Thank you. And congratulations again. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone. Who joins and all the work you do and happy teacher. Oh my God, what a special week! Happy Teacher Appreciation Week. I feel so honored to be here. So thank you so much. And, and you know, like, yeah, there's just so much more work that we can do.
1: Excellent. Well, again, before we wrap up, we always love to end the show with the last three questions. And here we have Tanya Gonzalez. She was already really excited. She was like, Hey, the big three. And here she is. She knows that here we go one, <laughs> two, three. All right. So, Tanya. The first question for you is, is, or the first question, in the current state of education, what would you say is your current edu-kryptonite?
0: My edu-kryptonite. That would be the thing that
1: makes Superman weak, that you're like, uh, I don't want to hear. Yeah.
0: That I don't want to hear it. Oh, okay. Well, it's kind of controversial, but I'm just going to go there. Like, I live in the state of Florida. I'm... I'm like super grossed out by like book banning and like just, you know, homophobia and transphobia and like all of those pieces. Like I, I can't like, and I'm not saying it in, like it's awful and it's making me like want to throw up every time I open up the news. It's so awful. So I, I I know that's happening in other States as well, but like, I'd say like, it's not that I don't want to hear it. It's like, I want it to go away and I want people to like love our children and like I want I want this madness to stop so that would be my number 1
1: All right good answer thank you so much I really appreciate you, I appreciate you sharing that All right question number 2 is if you could have a billboard with anything on it what would it be and why
0: Oh my god <laughs> Oh my god Oh my god I guess in that vein it would be just like love is love I don't know like maybe right now just like let's like can't we get along (laughs) like you know I don't know I might my brain is going there but like I don't know just we gotta you know we gotta love the you know our kids we can't we can't do this gotta stop I don't know I don't know
1: that's like very Brian but that's okay that's okay we can maybe we could do a series like you know sometimes on the highway there'd be like three that go together and like that so we can definitely set that up so good answer (laughs) All right, and the last question, Tanya, is, what's your favorite hobby or pastime outside of work?
0: Oh, um, outside of work, I'm such a workaholic. oh, I okay, well, I love to work out, which sounds really sad, maybe, but like I love it. I love to go on a hike. um, I love to like I literally love my peloton, and I can't work. I'm obsessed I work out like six days a week. So I think that that's maybe my hobby. I can't believe that that's the thing I do and I love, but I really love it. It's
1: Excellent. Hey, great yeah. answer. Great answer. All right. Well, Ta- Tanya, sorry. It's been a wonderful conversation with you again. Thank you so much for being here and again, sharing all just the Adobe awesome sauce. Your, uh, you know, just your heart here as well, because we, I definitely, ever since I first, you know, started following you on Twitter, you just definitely just have this, you know, you just exude this, uh, just excitement and you really pump people up and just this joy that you have. So thank you for being that way. Thank, because we definitely need, you know, more joyous hearts like yourself to just be sharing just all this creative magic that you do. So keep doing what you're doing. And also thank you again for being the 200th guest. It is an honor. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you and for my friends that are joining us in the chat we had jared we had tanya we had mel that stopped by too as well and for all of you guys that are watching that will be watching this on the replay listening to it later again from the bottom of my heart thank you so much for making my edtech life what it is today we do what we do for you and always remember that our mission is to connect educators and creators one show at a time And again, please make sure that you stop by our website at myedtech.life, myedtech.life, where you can check out this amazing episode and the other 199 amazing episodes with wonderful educators and creators that you can take some knowledge nuggets from and sprinkle them on to what you are already doing great. And also, if you'd love to contribute to our mission, of connecting educators and creators one show at a time, please stop by our merch store. We know that summer conference season is here. We know that winter is right around the corner. I know we just started summer, but, you know, winter conference season. So we've got shirts, hats, sweaters. Just stop by. We definitely appreciate that. And all of that goes back to our show. So, again, as always, thank you so much. And, my friends, until next time, don't forget, stay techie.